This is Alex Moskowitz of the Emery Wheel and Aaron Perlstein of BPA Hoops. You're listening to the Sixth Man Podcast on Anchor.fm. Welcome back, folks, to the Sixth Man Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Moskowitz, alongside co-host, Aaron Perlstein of Silver Waves Media. Today, we are joined by an incredibly special guest, New, York, New York's own Alan Hahn. Alan Hahn is an Emmy Award-winning broadcaster and journalist who currently serves as a studio analyst for all of the Knicks' home and away games on MSG. He also hosts a radio show on ESPN Radio with Bart Scott each weekday from 1 to 3 in the afternoon. So without further ado, please welcome Alan Hahn. How are we doing, guys? Thanks. Very good. So, so first, before we get into the Knicks and all that's happening in the NBA with the restart, Aaron and I and our listeners would like to know how you ended up as a premier sports broadcaster and journalist. What interested you in sports journalism and what led to you pursuing sports journalism coming out of college? It's, uh, it's, a, it's a really roundabout story. Um, I played basketball in college and high school. Um, always had these, you know, fleeting dreams of playing professionally at some some place somewhere. Um, my body wouldn't let me. I had injuries always at the worst time for me. I'll use that as an excuse. Not say I wasn't good enough, but um, I reached a point in college where I just, you know, you just know. Okay, I'm, you know, not only am I not an NBA player, which you find that out pretty quickly even before college, but you know, I, I don't see a, a possibility for me of playing overseas. So I got to be, I got to do something. And I always felt like I love sports. I was always a sports fan growing up. And it's one of those things where if I can't play it, then let me talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so I just, I followed that as a major, you know, journalism was my major. Uh, my plan was to always be a sports writer. Um, you know, when I went to college, the internet hadn't existed yet. So I didn't think anything about websites, podcasts, none of this stuff ever existed. Uh, Sports talk radio was a new thing. And, you know, just game coverage was all you had. ESPN was still fairly new. Um, You know, it was around for a decade already when I was in college. But just the idea of of what ESPN does today compared to what they were back then is two different things. So – for me, it was always going to be about being a beat writer and maybe a columnist. And, you know, that was going to be my life, write a couple of books, you know, live that life. So that's what I did. And it took a long time out of college because I didn't have a lot of experience. I was just an athlete. I wasn't anything else. So it took, uh, you know, it took four years of grinding as a part-timer as sort of, you know, just a nobody to, uh, to get an opportunity to cover a pro team. And I was fortunate enough to, you know, not cover, you know, I covered hockey, I covered the NHL, I covered football, I covered the Jets. Um, and then I covered the Knicks and the NBA. And that the Knicks and the NBA is really where, because basketball is something that I knew really well. Um, I love the game. I had a, a real passion for the Knicks and its history. 
And there was a lot of opportunity there because the Knicks are such a, a prominent franchise that it led to um, the exposure of being on TV more often. And uh, MSG, you know, liked what I was doing and wanted to add sort of a uh, reporter analyst to what they were doing. And uh, they hired me. And from that, it also led to then doing appearances on ESPN radio. So again, talking Knicks, talking the NBA, talking the league. And the more I did that, they were like, hey, uh, you know, come on more often. And hey, we didn't know you know about baseball. We didn't know you know about football. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of all sports. So it just evolved. And then I got a show and been on a couple of different shows. And now I'm on this one. But I guess the moral of the story is, if you told me when I was a freshman in college that, you know, 30 years from now, you're going to be, you're going to have a sports talk radio show in the in middays in New York City and also be on all the Nick broadcasts. I would have told you you're crazy. I don't like to be on TV and I hate my voice. <laughs> but, but, but here we are. So it's amazing where life will take you as long as you just kind of keep your head down, keep working. And, um, you know, just, and, and every opportunity that comes your way, you, you take the, you seize it, make the best of it. And cause there's always somebody watching, always somebody listening. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I think it's really inspiring your story. I think, I mean, I wouldn't call it a rags to riches story, but coming, you know, working, <laughs> I would. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, working as a part-time sports clerk and then going from that to where you are now, obviously with a lot of steps in between, it's really inspiring for aspiring journalists, you know, who are trying to get their start uh, coming out of college. Um, and also, what I, I usually tell, I usually tell anybody that, you know, reaches out to me from colleges and sometimes even high schools is the most important thing is not to feel like I've got to, you know, I got to hit the ground running, got to jump out of the gate and cover the highest level possible. You got to understand like some of the best in the business started out taking, you know, high school agate scores and answering phones um, you know, doing a podcast by themselves in their basement, you know, like the, some of the best people, some of the most successful people started out that way. It's, it's more about the experience and, and how much time you put into your craft. It's just like an athlete. It's the exact same thing. The harder you work at it, the better you'll get out of it. And it's about your opportunity. And when you have an opportunity, you seize it, you're ready for it. And that's, you know, that's generally what this is. So, that's the best message I can give people. You, you, you know, you're never going to just come out of college and become a superstar or cover the, you know, like I was in, I love the NBA. I, I knew, I know now I wasn't ready to cover the NBA right out of high, right out of college. I thought I was, but when later on you look back, you're like, Oh, you didn't know half the stuff you thought you knew. You didn't know, you know, and how to deal with relationships. And, you know, it's more than just being able to spew stats and, you know, and, and talk about uh, your opinion, give a hot take. It's also about getting to know people and getting information out of people and, and having the experience of what you're looking at, that you can compare it to other things that you've seen. So that's, that's the message I give people is no job too small, but whatever job you do get, give it everything you've got. Because as I said, you never know who's watching, who's listening, and who might say, I like this kid, I want to give him a chance. Definitely. I, I think that's 
incredibly great advice. Um, and you talked about your radio career. Obviously, you started off as a next analyst, and then you got into ESPN Radio. So for the first three years of your ESPN Radio career, you had a show with um, Humpty and Canty. And then right. you moved to being, you know, hosting a show by yourself. What was the transition like? Was it more difficult hosting this show by yourself? It's a great question. Um, so what happened was when I, when I, the first show I got was Rick DiPietro was a goalie uh, in the NHL for 10 years. He was the number one overall pick and I covered him early in his career. We got to know each other. And when his career ended, the injury he was a big sports fan too we used to always kick around sports in the locker room together we used to debate stuff all the time so i was doing fill-ins on espn radio in new york uh, like on a weekend stuff like that like i wasn't you know i was they were just asking me to fill in and i was just doing it for extra money i never thought it would turn into anything it was just extra cash and he would he would every now and then text me like if i was bringing up something and he would like debate me on it over text so I saw him once at a golf outing. And I was like, dude, if you're not, if you're not doing anything with your life, why don't you try this? You'd be good at it. You're funny. You're, you know, you debate. And so we just, on a whim one night, he comes in as I was doing a fill in at night. And he just comes in and he sits in with me. So we, we were a hit. We did really well. They gave us a show in the middle of the day, a 12 to three, which was for two guys that had zero experience. That was a, a big risk. And we did it for three years Chris Canty, who played for the Giants and won a Super Bowl with the Giants, um, he used to call into our show as a guest. And when he retired, we added him to the pile. And so it was the three of us, and we had a great time. But for me, schedule-wise, they moved us to 10 to 1. And schedule-wise, it just didn't work for me because doing that plus Nick games, I wasn't home ever. It was just you had to get up real early in the morning for that show, like 6 o'clock, uh, be in the city. I would be in the city by 7 a.m., and then I'm staying all day doing a Nick game where I'm home, you know, sometimes one, two o'clock in the morning after a Nick game and I'm waking up again, four hours later, it just, that's not a lifestyle. So I left the show. And when I did, I just thought I'm just going to leave radio. And the, the, uh, the station manager said, I don't want you to leave. What if I put you on at night? And I said by myself, okay. So I went solo and it's a good question. When you work with two other people, there's not a lot of time to talk. Normally you're setting up, you're asking questions, you fight a little bit, now you got to go to commercial. Like you run out of time quickly. You take a call or two. It's amazing how fast the show goes. So I was nervous because it's like, oh, wait, I got a three-hour show, 7 to 10 p.m., and I've got to fill three hours by myself. And that's four segments per hour. And it's usually about 12 minutes long, 15 minutes long. And I'm really like, how am I doing this like by myself? I don't know if I'm able to do it, but I'll give it a try. And I found actually that it was really, um, it was so like freeing because I didn't have to worry about setting up my partner. I didn't have to worry about making sure I didn't say too much, giving him time to speak. I didn't have to worry about anything. It became, what did I think of something? And be creative enough to ask a question that would spur a response on social media or in calls. And I loved it. And so, for the next two years, I did it, and I realized I was finding myself as a broadcaster, which I never had the time to do while being a host with two other athletes because you're like a point guard at that point. Now I was more of an ISO player, you know? Mm -hmm. Like I went from like Chris Paul to James Harden. 
<laughs> and that's sort of the mentality is like, okay, I'm taking every shot now. So I had to be prepared for every show. I had to do a lot of work. I had to find, you know, one liners. If I middle of the day, guys, middle of the day, I'd be driving in a car running an errand and you know, I'd hear a topic on sports talk radio and I would think of a line, like a funny line. And I'm like, I got to remember that. So I would, I would text it to myself. Like, remember this, like the line that I just thought to myself that would be funny or a good comeback or whatever it is. And it was just a way to prepare. And those two years allowed me to really expand and learn how to be a better radio host. So when I got the opportunity then to work with Bart uh, and get back to middays and get back to more of like a show with two, you know, another voice, I was far more prepared for it than I was the first time around. And I personally feel like I'm better now because of the time I spent going solo, but I didn't think I could do it, but it's amazing how once you, once you put the time, once you do it and you feel like, Oh, I'm getting, you get into that rhythm. It's, it's amazing how, like I said, the, freeing i felt so much more freedom behind the microphone because it's just you and whoever's listening and i thought there were times was like you know maybe there's no one listening but i didn't care if even if no one's listening i'm talking to someone and i just kept telling myself that there's someone listening and i was talking to them and it just became uh, for me a lot of fun but incredibly educational that's, awesome. that's interesting so Moving on to the Knicks, uh, we're going to focus on the most immediate decision that the Knicks must make as a franchise, hiring a head coach. So yeah. who do you think is the best choice for the job? Well, it depends on the direction they're going. That's going to sound like a cop-out, but it's true. Because right now, the franchise has been in the direction of drafting and developing is they, they've, they have a lot of draft picks. They have a bunch of first round picks over the next couple of years. Um, and they've, they've the last, they have four top 10 picks on their roster right now. So do they stay that course with all the picks they have and just keep building it that way? If that's the case, your best bet is Kenny Atkinson because of the job he did in Brooklyn and how good of a, he's so good at developing players. Ask anybody at the Atlanta Hawks, uh, when he was with the Knicks as an assistant, the job he did with Jeremy Lin and others, getting them ready to play. Anybody that's worked with him swears by him as a development coach. So if that's your plan, that's the way you go. But this is a new regime now. And they might look at the roster and say, that's other people's players. That's not our guys. These aren't our draft picks. And draft picks aren't always meant to be used to draft players. They're meant to be packaged together to trade for players. And if that's the case and you're looking to get the roster uh, older and you're looking to get somebody and a disgruntled all-star or whoever's out there that could be available, if you're looking to get vets on this team, then you're, and to try to win right away with a structured system, Tom Thibodeau makes the most sense. Uh, you know, again, other experienced coach, Jason Kidd uh, would also make sense because he's another guy that's a very organized kind of coach. Um, you look at anyone, Mark Jackson uh, could fit into more of, like I said about Kenny Atkinson because of what Mark did in Golden State. So you got to tell me first, what's their plan, which I don't know yet. And then tell me then, then I'll tell you what kind of coach fits them the best. And we'll know that ironically, they're not going to tell us what their plan is, but whoever they hire will pretty much be a hint 
of the direction they're going in. So if they hire Thibodeau, I would not expect the Knicks to stay in the process. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's a great answer. Um, I'm, I'm Aaron, by the way, uh, I'm the co-host. Um, and I actually went out on a limb for a new uh, name. I know it came up this, uh, today, uh, Chris Fleming of the Chicago Bulls. Uh, you know, my big background is in uh, the draft and uh, I'm actually like a credentialed scout. And, uh, <clears throat> and I see Chris Fleming as someone that can really revamp a young roster uh, you know, he took the NBA's worst offense in the Chicago Bulls and helped them upgrade to, uh, you know, 105-plus offensive ratings. Um, he added much mm-hmm. more space. He, he's under the Popovich tree. Uh, he's coached in FIBA and uh, Germany. And, you know, like you said, it definitely depends on the way they want to go. But I think that's a really good uh, dark horse name. Is, uh, did, did, did he coach with Kenny in Brooklyn? Uh, he was on the Nets coaching staff, yes, at some point. Yeah, yeah okay. So, yeah, see, and that's what I like about him is, is what they're doing. This is now 12, uh, I think, candidates that they have now, and there's a lot of them that are highly regarded assistant coaches around the league, which is a very smart thing to do. Mm-hmm. This, is, this might sound crazy, but I'm the mad scientist. There's no salary cap on coaching, scouting, and your front office. There's no salary cap. You can get the best of the best. You can tell who, what are they paying you will double it. Like that's how you can do that in mm-hmm. the NBA. And I want to get the best of the best. He's a guy that I've heard that name before. And, and I've heard, actually heard that attached to Kenny because he's exactly what you would want as one of your top assistants. Right. I want somebody with experience as my head coach for this franchise, but it doesn't mean I don't want to build a superstar uh, coaching staff. And I would give somebody like him a great opportunity as a lead, a lead assistant, as a top assistant, as an associate head coach. So you're interviewing people, and you might, not, might, you might not be interviewing them to be your head coach. You give them the opportunity, of course. But I also could see a scenario where a guy like him could come in as a top assistant and do exactly what you're saying about his offense and what he's able to do for Boylan with the, uh, with the Bulls. I like that name a lot. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's definitely, it's something that they're going to have to decide on. That makes sense having him as a, you know, the top assistant to Kenny. So, you know, with the Knicks overall, not just the coaching, and I know you have a very popular blog with the Knicks fix. Um, I've read a lot of the articles. They're really good. Uh, What do you think is the fix? You know, are they on the right path? Uh, Like what do they need to actually turn around the organization? You got to start with an identity. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something they really haven't had in a long time. Um, and that identity has to be established and then maintained consistently. You know, the last identity they had was this was Carmelo Anthony's team and they built a team with vets around him and they had success. Yeah. But then they made a couple of mistakes and then obviously it, they decided, okay, we're not going to go with older guys. We're going to try to rebuild while keeping Carmelo, which, as we know, that was a failed experiment. That did not make sense. Mm-hmm. You know, the Derrick Rose stuff and Joe Kim Noah, like that just – that wasn't the way to do it. Short term, you got to have stability and consistency, and they just haven't been able to maintain that. So, especially now with the last couple of years where it's been about young – you know, going young and getting out from under the salary cap and – having draft picks and all that stuff. And then they were going to make the run at 
Kevin Durant and another star, and that didn't work out. So those days, like that stuff's got to stop, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. You've got to establish what you're going to be and then target the players that fit that rather than let's chase a star and then figure out what we want to be. Right. You know, that's why, that's why a lot of players don't want to come to you because they don't know what you are. So I think it has to start with that. And once again, it goes back to who you hire as your head coach and what that coach is going to be about. You know, Leon Rose, uh, William Wesley, they're behind the scenes guys. So you're never going to see them out front, you know, making bold proclamations. Not, not, that's not who they are. So there still needs to be a face of the franchise. And I believe your head coach is going to be that guy. So that has to start there. Give me your coach. And now I've got an understanding of what you're going to be. If it's Thibodeau, we all know. We all know what he is. It's going to be a hardworking defensive team, a very structured team. There's going to be a top 10, top five defense in the league. Very tough to play against. But obviously you're going to need somebody that can run an offense. So that's, you know, that's what you're going to see there. So I think it starts with that. I think what's going to fix the Knicks is they have to figure out who they are, what's your identity, and then build the team based off the identity rather than off of what's the biggest name we could get to sell tickets or to get people excited. That's kind of been the thing in 2010 and obviously last summer as well. Yeah, I agree. And someone, someone to add to the front office. I mean, I know you guys just hired Alex Klein. Uh, you know, the, yep. that's someone I've Very looked to for, for years. Very good. As a young. Uh, Very good hire. Yeah, no, there's a guy you want to emulate. That's, yep. a, that's a guy you want to emulate. You talk about somebody that uh, exactly what I said, start small, worked his tail off, you know, was everywhere, became so, made himself invaluable just because of the hard work. He yep. was there. Show up. Part of success is showing up, being there. And that's what he was. He went to high school games. He got to know it. He looked at it as no job too small. I'm going to go to this high school. I'm going to get to know these players. I'm going to get to know this coming. Everything about them. So I'm the expert in this tiny little world, but there's value to that. And all of a sudden somebody's watching saying, you know what? This kid works hard. He knows everything. I'm relying on him now. That's a great example of someone. You can do it in media, but you can also do it, obviously, and turn yourself into a scout and a valuable one. I love that. I love, I'll really be honest with you. I really like the hires that they've made. Yeah. I think Brock Aller is brilliant. I, I think Brock Aller is terrific hire. Yep. Very under the radar, very yep. smart hire. Walt Perrin has been around forever. You talk about somebody that knows the draft, understands it. He certainly is that guy. So they've added some pieces to, uh, you know, to that front office that I think, as I said, you get the best of the best. You put them together and you let them work. And you'll see how quickly you can change the culture. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so you talked about developing an identity. And obviously it comes from the coach and also comes from the guys you draft. Because those are the guys who are going to be there the longest and they're homegrown players. And they really resemble the city. So I want to focus on the four most highly touted young players that the Knicks have recently drafted in Frank Nielakina, mm-hmm. Mitchell Robinson, R.J. Barrett and Kevin Knox. What do you think of each of those players? Do you think they have a future to play within Leon Rose's Knicks? Well, again, it starts with, and I keep giving you caveats, but it's mainly because, you know, there's a lot to be seen once we get to October, and there's a, it's going to be a very short offseason. It's going to feel like a shotgun wedding a lot of times, and they're going to have a lot of work to do uh, with the roster. So I, I I have to see what the plan is going forward to know whether or not any of these faces fit into the plan. 
because they also could be valuable in landing an all-star that might become available due to trade um, for whatever reason. So you have to always leave that caveat out there when it's a, a new front office. But let's just talk about them uh, one by one, and I'll take them in chronological order. Frank Nielakina is coming into his own. It took a while. I think that was to be expected because he came into the NBA so young and with not a lot of experience at a high level in Europe. People don't realize that. He, you know, Luka, Luka Doncic played at the highest level in Europe and dominated. Frank didn't play. Frank played at the second level. So he came over and he had so much to learn still. So it took time, but there's something there. But is it something that can turn into, you know, top 10 player you hope to become an all-star? I don't know if he's got that, but I do think he's got value as a rotation player as he continues to develop. And I'd love to see him become more of a dog defensively, but I don't know if that's his personality. But he's emerging. As he's maturing, you're starting to see the confidence grow and him starting to feel like I belong here. So I want to see how much work he's been putting in now during this long hiatus and what part of his game, especially the shooting, that maybe he's improved. Um, next up, uh, uh, Kevin Knox. And Kevin Knox to me is such an enigma because physically he's not stopped growing yet. He could end up 6'10". Um, he's got physical tools that make you think, boy, you know, if you could just harness this, he could be special. But you wonder from the neck up what his abilities are on the basketball court. I think he has a willingness to work. I, I, that's what you like about him. He's a very coachable, good kid. He's not an attitude problem. None of that stuff. He's, he's, his parents did a great job raising him. He comes from parents. His dad was a pro. So, you know, he has that background in him. He has the pedigree in him. There's so much to like about him, right? There's so much on paper that wants to convince yourself no, no, you got to stick with this kid because once the light turns on, it could be special, but you watch him on the court, and I think it's, again, he's just immature. You know, so do you have the patience to wait for him to grow up, to have that moment, too, where he realizes, I'm in the NBA, I belong here. You know, I put in the work. I can take on these guys. I'm not afraid of anybody. I'm not timid. He plays timid. I yep. think that's the biggest issue with him. And if they can, if he can mature out of that, they might have something uh, in him that's that's worthwhile. Uh, R.J. Barrett to me is a foundational player. Everything about him screams leader. Everything about him screams winner. Everything tells me that this is somebody that what you see now is nothing compared to what he'll be uh, by the time like he's like 23, 24 years old in this league. He's a guy that. His own peers, his, class, his draft class, they look at him with respect. They look up to him. That's saying something. Was he the best rookie in the league? No, obviously not. He might not have been the top five rookie in the league this year. But that's now, at 19 years old. There's a lot I like about him. His game has flaws, no question. But there's so much about him character-wise, work ethic-wise, and by the way, a most important one, physicality-wise. Strong kid that I feel like he'll overcome some of the deficiencies and figure out a role for himself that will make him a very important player on a winning team once he's older. So I, I really like him. Mitchell Robinson, to me, is the out of the four, has the best chance to be an all-star, like right away. He's so good, he has no idea how good he is. It's almost, it's almost hilarious. Like, it's funny to watch him because it's like he doesn't even know. Like, Melo said this, he doesn't even know what he's doing. He doesn't even know how good he is. 
That's the scary thing about him. So much physical ability, such a competitive nature about him that he hates it when you get a rebound over him. He's so mad he's coming down the floor, he can't wait to block your shot because you just took a rebound from him. Like, that's how he is, and you can't teach that. He's got the length. He challenges everything. He got smarter and smarter as he was coached better defensively. Uh, such great potential in him. I really do think he could become an all-star. And what a find he was in the second round for a kid that didn't even play in college. So I believe those are the four you're talking about. Those are the four that, that, that I feel like of the young players uh, are the ones that I'm really focused on. Yeah. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you that Mitchell Robinson is definitely the crown jewel of the Knicks youngers of the Knicks younger players. I I flip-flop on RJ Barrett all the time. Because he'll have games where he looks like an absolute stud. Like he'll score 28 points, grab tons of rebounds, facilitate for his teammates. But in other games and it's kind of scary the the contrast between his good games and his bad games. He'll look like he doesn't belong anywhere near the court. And I was, I was very enthused by the fact that he showed progress toward the, towards the end of the season. But another thing that worries me is that you talk about developing his shooting stroke. A lot of that, like, he's, in addition to not being a good three-point shooter, he's also abysmal at the free throw line for a guard, which really worries me personally. That scares you. Yeah, the, the free throw shooting is always the area that scares you because, like, Frank Nielakina is the opposite. He's an impeccable free throw shooter, yet he can't make a 15-footer because he's so inconsistent with his release. Yet on the free throw line, he's perfect. So it makes you wonder, well, wait, if, he's a free, if he can shoot a free throw, then he's a good shooter. He's got other issues with his shot. Maybe it's balance or something else. Whereas RJ, RJ's such a bad free throw shooter, it feels like his mechanics are a disaster. And he's a rhythm shooter. But I also look at him, though, and I see somebody that – already physically at 19, goes to the basket at will against vets. Like, I've seen him do some of those, you know, those strong drives where he draws contact, and I've seen 30-year-old grown men have to get bumped back because of a 19-year-old bumping into them, taking contact, and going to the rim. Well, that game winner against P.J. Tucker. There you go. Great example. Talk about a a strong guy in P.J. Tucker. So, you know – that's the stuff about him that makes me say, like, nah, he's got something. It's work on his shot to make it good enough. I'm going to – this can be blasphemy, I know it. Dwayne Wade is not a good basketball shooter. Like, he's not a good shooter. He was great early in his career at getting to the rim, drawing contact, and finishing. Now, he was way more above the rim than RJ, and he was older when he got in the league than RJ. But I always looked at Wade the same way. It took Wade time – to become more of a threat as a perimeter shooter, as a pull-up shooter. He had floaters, but he could, you know, he was more at drawing contact and he was constantly crashing to the court. I look at RJ as somebody that if he can develop a floater, so he's not always drawing contact and he can keep the defense honest, the floater will be the thing that freezes the defense. His jumper certainly isn't. People are going to lay off him and that's fine. That's why you need the floater. So there's something in his game that somebody's got to find where his go-to shot, and then he has the counter. And if he does that, he could be unstoppable. But you're right. He's going to draw tons of contact, and he's going to leave a million points on the line because he shoots 50%. So that's got to get better and not 60%. 
he's got to get himself into the 70s at the very least before you really take him serious. But knowing him like I do, I know he's a guy that knows that. I don't need to tell him. And I'm curious to see how much time he's putting in to making sure, like, you know what? I'm not going to let free throw shooting be the death of me. Like, you, you know, that's the, that could be the difference. Free throw shooting could be the difference between averaging 18 a game and averaging 10 a game, averaging 12 a game. So for him, it's, it, it's going to cost him money more than anything. So that's the great motivator, isn't it, boys? Yep. Uh, you know, from my perspective, uh, you know, from watching R.J. Barrett in Monover and then to, at Duke, uh, obviously his free throw shooting has been a big uh, concern. But, you know, when I look at his stats from last year and, you know, being 23rd in his class in PER, um, obviously that's disheartening and not how I expected his first year to go. But I think the biggest thing is who, who's around him. You know, he didn't really have shooters very well. He didn't have, a, uh, you know, real efficient finishers down low. Um, I, don't, I, I never really thought of him as someone that could really take over an offense. I think he always needed someone with him to kind of um, lessen the load of sorts. And I think that showed last year. And I think, you know, people are kind of trying to put him into this, this box that he's the go-to scorer for the Knicks. But I don't think that was ever kind of – No, type no that won't be who he is. Yeah, I don't think he'll ever be the team's leading scorer. I don't think that's who he's molded to be. I think he could be a really good Robin. I think he could be a really good compliment, complimentary player. Remember, he he started the league. He started in the league as a – he was barely 19. I think he might still – no, 18, 19, barely 19. And he was the opening night starting point guard. Yep. Right, let's remember that. And, and that should never happen. That should have never happened. Exactly. And on top of it, he also played on a team with a lot of vets who were on one-plus-one deals. And – you know, I'm not going conspiracy theory here, but I can just say that I watched enough games and watched, and I always rewatch games after I see them live and we, we call them on the air. Then I'll go home and then I'll watch them again to see what I missed. And I can count, I need both hands the amount of times that I've seen him wide open and be ignored. Yep. I've seen him go on a little bit of a run and then I'm not going to say frozen out, but you know how it goes. You're a rookie, you're going to wait your turn. Some vets want to get the ball here. That did happen. And I think also the system that they were playing was a lot of dribble handoff. That changed with the uh, coaching change. And this is not a knock on David Fisdale, who I'm a big fan of. It's just the way Fizz wanted to play. He didn't have the personnel uh, to play the way he wanted to play. But Mike Miller simplified things a little bit more. And I think RJ, once he got over the rookie wall, and he got his health back because he was banged up a little bit. Before the stoppage, I thought he was playing his best basketball, where he started to come back on. It started to come back for him. You saw him physically, uh, that, that part of his game getting there. And he had a couple of decent shooting games where he started to feel more rhythm. And I do, I do attribute that to the ball movement and the offense that changed, the spacing that was way better for a young player like him. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think uh, I liked your sentiments about Kevin Knox. I think – you know, it's, it's really, it's tough to tell what his future holds. I, I know, you know, I'm a big analytical guy and, uh, you know, he, he ranked dead last in uh, real plus minus this year out of the NBA. Oh, his, yeah, his, his numbers this year were embarrassing. Like it was, he was barely an NBA player according to analytics. Like right. he literally, he was barely an NBA player according to most of the analytics you can apply to his game. 
it was embarrassing. And what's sad is that his rookie year, he finished with a flurry. Like his, right. his last month of his rookie year, he looked like he was starting to figure it out. But this season, so much went – like there was just so much going against him coming off the bench. Uh, his, they were pick, the teams were picking on him defensively, and he, he got into his own head about it that it, it affected him emotionally, mentally. Mm-hmm. And I think he just wasn't himself. So you're right, though. I mean, if you're going to use numbers to describe him off of his second year in the NBA, that's a player that you're like, we won't see him in the league much longer. But when you know him and you look at him and you know his growth potential by looking at his body and the size of his feet, you see his parents, you know his age, you see his immaturity as just not just physically, but as a as a person, like when you talk to him and you meet him, nice kid, but you know, there's, there's nothing that says I'm a grown man about him. Nothing. Like he's still a kid. So once you see all that, you tell yourself, all right, this is one of those things that you put in the slow cooker and you come back later and you know, it's going to smell delicious. But right now it doesn't look like much, but later it could end up being a a, a gourmet meal. So let it, just let it simmer for a while. I like that. I like that. I really Uh, like that. So overall, like now, now not just the Knicks, uh, you know, we know that the NBA is returning at the end of July um, down in Orlando. Do you think that the NBA bubble, the system that they have in place, do you think will work? By definition, it's supposed to, right? Because the idea of the bubble is that no one will enter the bubble unless they have been cleared of COVID or they test negative for COVID, right? Mm-hmm, right. So by theory... No one in the bubble should have the virus. The virus should not exist inside the bubble. So the only way the virus can become an issue inside the bubble is if somebody breaks protocol and doesn't say anything, but they're going to be watching everyone. They're going to keep an eye on everybody. It, it's, it seems like, again, in theory, it should be foolproof. But as we know, like Patrick Ewing told me, I wore a mask. I socially distanced. I didn't go anywhere. And I still got the virus. Right. So you by theory, the bubble should work because no one inside the bubble should have the virus. And that's the only people you're interacting with. But as we know, there's always there's always going to be those, you know, cracks in the wall, so to speak. And we'll see how they handle it once there is that case where, uh oh, you know, this player, this player somehow tested positive. Now he's got to be quarantined. And by the way, what's really concerning let's say there's a conference final that we're all looking forward to, which is Lakers Clippers. Mm-hmm. What happens if, as they do their daily testing, suddenly LeBron James tested positive and now he must go into a 10-day quarantine? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. What a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like if, you're LeBron, like, like, if you're the league, what do you do? Right? If you're LeBron, like, hey, I'm asymptomatic. It doesn't matter to me. But, well, the Clippers say, no, no, no. Well, he can't come near us. Right? Yeah. So that's that's a crazy thing that you've got to say to yourself. What happens then? So you know that's what you got to keep an eye on. But by theory, the bubble should work because of exactly how they're treating it. No one comes in and out. You're tested constantly, and you should not have contact with anybody that has the virus because you shouldn't be around anybody that has the virus when you're inside the bubble. But if you leave it and nobody knows you left it, you have a chance to to ruin everything no alan i completely agree with you in theory it should work but i personally after seeing 
what has gone on with the MLS, with their bubble that they're trying to institute in down in Orlando, I personally have serious doubts because the MLS, obviously they're doing it in Orlando at Disney. They're doing a, a tournament style uh, competition. Right. And one team has already been forced to send to be sent home because 11 players tested positive. And then another team, Nashville, is having similar COVID problems. And their, up- their upcoming game was postponed. So I don't know. I have doubts about it. And I read something on Yahoo Sports recently about how you can test negative for COVID right. up to a week uh, after you can actually right. contracted it. Right. So they're making right. the NBA players quarantine. That's why they're testing. Rooms. And that's why they're testing now. Yeah. Right. That's why they were testing well before they were supposed to show up. They were testing and then testing more and then testing again. And, and that's, that's why they're doing it because they, they want to, they want to get ahead of it because exactly what you said, you can catch it, test negative, get into the bubble and then test positive. Like that can, that, that can absolutely happen. So that's what I mean. Like you've got to just, you got to see how it works. You got, they're going to, they're going to watch everyone. They're going to contact trace everyone. They're going to, there's going to be cameras and everything else. And you know, it might be a life that the players don't love, but you're playing for a championship and those that want to win it and think they have a chance to win it. And obviously LeBron's being one of them, his team, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they're, they're going to, they're going to do whatever it takes because this championship, people say they put an asterisk on it because well, it's a, you know, it's, it's a weird setup and, you know, it's not really a, a true NBA finals because there's no crowds and you're not traveling. I say it's actually the opposite. I think this one, you can put an asterisk on it, but it might be the most difficult one to win. Definitely. I agree. So now we're going to go into a quick rapid fire segment. I saw you did this, a similar thing on Twitter last night, but we have a few extra questions. So our first Rapid fire question is what is your best Knicks memory? Patrick Ewing, put back dunk, celebrating a trip to the finals, standing in front of the crowd with his arms outstretched. I was still fairly young and it was, you know, we finally made it kind of moment. It was awesome. Okay. Favorite New York athlete. That's a tough one. Toss up. I mean, Patrick's always been my favorite Nick. But uh, hockey-wise, Bob Nystrom was always my favorite Islander. Okay, worst Knicks memory. <laughs> and there have been a lot. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's, you know, there's a lot of places we can go with this one. But I, I – my worst Knicks memory is to be watching John Starks just shoot himself into oblivion and how painful it was to watch that. In Game 7, 1994. Yeah. Apparently that summer he tried to shoot his wife and he missed. Ah, uh, John's a friend of mine. That, that's what my dad has told me about the joke, the running uh, joke John, that summer. Yeah, uh, John's, John's a friend of mine and he's a good guy and it, it, it hurts he me. He was a great player. Day. He was, absolutely was. And it's, you know, tough to see that happen. When the, when the game before, game six, people forget he had an unbelievable game and Hakeem just gets a fingertip on that shot uh, for the win. Um, 
you know, so it's just what a, what a what a tough time for him, but for Nick fans to be that close, one win away, and you know him to have that kind of a game, a two for eighteen, it's just hard to watch. It's like a tin cup moment if you know that movie. Yes. Um, he just kept shooting, hoping the next one will go in. It was it was just tough to watch, and again, like I said, I just knowing him like I do now, just you feel even worse for him. But at the time when I didn't know him personally, it was just. It was just hard to watch. It was tough, maddening. So another one, your feelings as a Knicks fan during the last dance documentary. Because my dad personally couldn't watch it. I enjoyed the nostalgia. Um, I felt they gave a little respect to the Knicks, but not enough. I think he just mentioned them a few times. They didn't put enough time into what happened. Uh, 93 and then 94, you know, they obviously talk about the dunk and then Jordan, they make it look like Jordan came back for game three and like lit it up where he didn't. He was terrible in game three. Problem is the Knicks could have hit a free throw in game three. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, they win that game. The series is over. They're up 3-0. Yeah. But they didn't. And so it became a series. And we all know what happened, obviously, in game five. Um, but – I thought that they glazed over 97 and that Nick team that was built to beat him and beat him three out of four times the regular season, despite, you know, obviously the, the 72 wins Nick's had beaten them and they were, they thought they could get them. And obviously they didn't get far enough because of the brawl with the heat and Ewing being suspended. And so it was their own fault, but no mention at all of the Knicks that year. And in fact, it really killed me that they talked about how the Pacers were the toughest team they faced in their in, in all their runs during those four championships. I mean, the Pacers, are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> you know, that, that part, that part, like, I, I didn't want to listen to that. That part bothered me. The rest of it, though, was fun. It was nostalgic. It was, it was fun to, to relive it. Okay, and one last rapid-fire question. Your most exciting time to be a Knicks fan this decade, I'll give you two options. Lynn Sanity or the Knicks' only playoff series victory against the Celtics? Well, I'm going to go with the, the 54-win season because they were, they were just – they were good. They had vets. They were tough. Nobody messed with them. And you talk about another team. People forget they went toe-to-toe with the Heat that year in the regular season. Yep. And guys like Kidd and Rasheed Wallace and Kurt Tuck, they weren't afraid of the Heat. They, you know, they, they felt like – we get out of this Pacer series, we could beat that team. And they felt it. And that's why not being able to get through the Pacers series was also frustrating because you want, I wanted to see what would have happened if they played the Heat that year with that squad, with a bunch of, you know, OGs, you know, 36, 38, 40-year-olds that would have loved to have done to knock that team off its mantle. And I, they talked about it. They wanted it. And they couldn't get past the Pacers – Unfortunately, so just like 97, we'll never know if that team could have beaten the best team in the league. Uh, but I still say that year, though, 12-13, you know, the bench mob, JR, Novak with the discount double check. Hmm. Just seeing them win 54, seeing them win a division. Uh, Mike Woodson, I hosted a show with Mike Woodson that year as well, and he was, I mean, he was hilarious. It was just a cool time. Melo is one of the best players in the league, MVP candidate, scoring champ. It was just – that to me was as good a year as you, you could have had as a Nick fan 
since the Ewing era. Yeah, definitely. Really felt like a group of guys that you could get behind and support. Oh, it was they easy, were all underdogs. Easy to easy. It was, but it was also, uh, like I said, OGs. It was just you know the, the 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 guys, the vets on that team. I mean, they rolled deep, and they like you know graybeards. I mean, they were older than some of the other coaches, <laughs> and they knew everything. They were calling out plays. Like there was just there were moments that season. Well, you just kind of smiled like, damn, like they just, they're just, they're not as fast, but they're just smarter. Like it was just cool to see stuff like that. You know, how they would just beat up young teams. Uh, you know, it was just, that stuff was cool. And no disrespect to Linsanity, which was a lot of fun, but it was basically two weeks. I mean, it was only two weeks. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Trust me, it was, it was fun, but I'll take a whole season like 12-13 was versus two weeks, which was fun, but fleeting. Definitely. No, I agree. So thank you so much for being on the show, Alan. It was incredible. You're such a great guy, an incredible commentator. And you guys can listen to Alan Hahn on ESPN Radio weekdays from 1 to, one to 3 and follow Alan Hahn on Twitter and Instagram to see his various segments for MSG. Thank you so much, Alan. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Guys, guys, it was a lot of fun. All the best. Okay.